wake you up, in case y'all weren't used to being in church. Uh, it would be an understatement to say we're glad that you are here. And uh, to all of you uh, with us online, uh, we say good morning, happy, uh, happy Sunday to all of you. Uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor for the transit. And uh, this is a, a pretty cool day. I mean, I'm thinking back like to seven and a half years ago when we first launched a church in, uh, in Hayfield Secondary School. It kind of feels like that because we haven't been together in such a long time, but we are here today, and really over this last four months, we've been together by the Spirit, and so God be praised for getting us to this point where we're able to, to gather again. Uh, we are in a series in First Peter. In fact, we just started it last week, and so if you're just joining us now, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, the New Testament book of First Peter. First Peter is going to be towards the end of your Bible if you aren't used to uh, reading your Bible. And uh, here's what I do to, you know, to sometimes cheat, even me. I, I, you know, there's a table of contents right in the front of your Bible. And if you don't know where First Peter is, use that table of contents. And uh, you're welcome to uh, find that that way. And, of course, uh, if you're watching uh, via your uh, live stream, the words are going to be on the screen. All right, we're going to read uh, verses 3 through 9 together. And so uh, you would oblige me by reading these out loud together wherever you are. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Let's read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pause to say thank you. Uh, this is the day that you've made, and we rejoice, and we're glad in it. And we have other reasons to rejoice. Obviously, this is our first time uh, back together physically in person. Uh, so we thank you for that. We thank you for those who, through technology, are, be, be able, uh, are able to to, to worship with us as well. Today, we, as we open your scriptures, Lord, we pray as we always do, that you would, uh, that you would uh, incline our hearts to your word. God, that, that these words, as we talk about the joy and suffering, God, that these words would cause us, despite whatever is going on in our lives, it would cause us to, to, to rejoice, to have great joy, to, be, to leap with joy over the things that you uh, have, have, have called us to, what you've done for us and, uh, and who you've made us. And so 
uh, help us to see Jesus. We pray that uh, this would not only uh, encourage us, it would change us. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So in 1 Peter, uh, the apostle is writing to churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Uh, This is modern-day Turkey, or most of modern-day Turkey, and he's writing to help equip them to live a life on mission together, knowing that that life uh, is going to be costly. And what Peter is doing is uh, exhorting his readers. He's telling them that the world they live in is going to be a hostile place to the gospel, that if they profess to be followers of Jesus, Christians, little Christ, that at some point, to to the degree that they follow Jesus is to the same commensurate degree that they will uh, feel, experience a little pushback because of the gospel. And with that, Peter is going to remind them of two things. And we saw this last week. He reminds them of who they are. And Peter gave some choice words in regards to, to who these people were. He said they were elect exiles of the dispersion. These Christians had been dispersed and excluded from the communities they were in because they held to faith in Jesus, because they were following Jesus. And so he uses these words to, to remind them of, of who they are. But then he also um, alludes to what God has done. And we get these beautiful words that God has uh, elected them to, by the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit uh, to the obedience and for the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. Beautiful words. And so that's a good reminder for us today, especially today on a day that uh, we come back together as a church. You know, there's this propensity that we have that uh, we, we think that church is an event. Like, I'm going to church, I'm going to get my clothes on, I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to hope to not have an argument with my spouse and my kids, and I'm going to get to the church and I'm going to worship. And that's what we do. We go to church sometimes. But in all actuality, you were the church before you got in the car. In fact, you were the church before you got your clothes on. Before you even thought to go to, you know, go to church, you were the church. You're the church as we walk through the door. We're the church as we are worshiping together this morning. We'll be the church as we gather our stuff and leave. And the intent is that we would be uh, the church, the, 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 the beautiful display of who God is and what he's done in our neighborhoods and in the region that God has called us to. You know, we don't need an event. We don't need actually Sunday. What has the coronavirus taught us? That though we are dispersed, and this is not our, our, our preferred way to worship, we can still be the church. Amen? Amen. And so we're the church. Prayerfully today, we're together, right, in the presence of Christ and in the presence of each other. And our hope is not in an event that happens on Sunday. Our hope is in Jesus. Here's what Paul says about Jesus, Christ in us. He's the hope of glory. And so as Paul is writing, as Peter is writing, he wants us, uh, he wants to remind his readers and us that amidst the suffering, the persecution, the oppression, the trials that we might face in life, when, when life gets hard, that's kind of the theme that we are looking at in the sermon series, that our God is faithful. He's faithful. That God is going to sustain us, that he'll keep us. That God is faithful, and so we can put our confidence fully and faithfully in him. All right, so the verses we're going to look at today, this is like, in the Greek, it's one long, it's like one long run-on sentence. As the translators in the ESV have have presented it to us. They've put a couple periods in there, um, but this is kind of a, a long, uh, a long sentence, and we're going to look at two thirds of that. We're going to look at three uh, verses three through nine. We'll save verses ten through twelve uh, for next week. 
uh, and to use a word that's been at the center of our current discussion, particularly the, the racial tensions in our country, Peter is talking about privilege. Privilege. Y'all say privilege with me. Privilege. All right. For my Caucasian brothers and sisters, not white privilege, right? I'm not, I'm not going, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about gospel privilege. The, the, the privileges of being the recipients of God's great mercy. Mercies that are new every morning, Lamentations 3 tells us. Mercies that are past, that are right now, and that will be waiting for you tomorrow morning when you wake up. He's talking about great mercies. The privilege of being born again to a living hope. And he elaborates on that. And, and then he put, Peter's going to say, even when we suffer trials, the, these, these trials serve to prove the genuineness of our faith. And so with that, I'm going to divide my sermon into, into three points. Three points regarding our gospel privilege, uh, his great mercy, God's great mercy, joy and suffering, and then lastly, evidences of genuine faith. We'll start in verse three with his great mercy. Let's read these verses again. You don't have to read with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter starts in verse 3 with, uh, with a doxology. A doxology is a, a hymn of praise. Uh, we actually don't find these words singularly here. Paul uses them as well. You might be familiar with, with kind of this opening in Ephesians 1-3, and again, 2 Corinthians 1-3, which has led some scholars to believe that, that Paul and Peter are uh, deriving their, their opening thoughts about addressing the people of God from the same place. This is likely... Uh, words or common vocabulary that the early church is using. If you come from a more liturgical uh, background, say when you grew up, or if you're Presbyterian or Lutheran, even Methodist, uh, a lot of times when uh, the pastor will pray, and at the end of that prayer, like I say, uh, this is God's word, uh, the, the, the congregation might say, in return, thanks be to God, right? Or praise be to God, or blessed be to God. That's, this is where that comes from, right? So, so here's what Peter's doing. He says, blessed be to God. In fact, I think what Peter's doing is he's, he's singing. Of course, this is a doxology, and doxologies are meant to be sung. And so Peter is singing as he's writing, and he's getting excited because he knows what he's going to write next. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. You know, if you don't hear anything else I say throughout the whole morning, or don't tone me out, right? But, but this, this first point is the most important point. It's, it's really important. If you're a Christian today, it's because you've been born again. In fact, there are no other kind of Christians. There's, there's no such thing as a Christian that's not been born again. Born again is not a subset of Christianity. A Christian is not a person who goes to church, joins the church, identifies with the church, votes in a certain way in a national election. Isn't that what the pollsters try to do to us Christians? They try to, like, like I'm a born-again Christian. I'm in the far-right GOP camp Christian. As if there were a, uh, the we could segregate Christians into types of Christians. Before God, a Christian is someone who has been acted upon 
from the outside. A supernatural work has erupted in our lives such that it's, it renovates us from the inside out. In fact, the, 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 uh, the Holy Spirit didn't have a better way for the, the Bible writers to articulate it. And so they, they said, all right, let's just call it like new birth, like born again. Paul, Paul was saying 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The, like the, all, the, the, the old part of you is gone. Behold, all things have become new. That's what it means to become born again. And so they've been born again. It's not behavior. It's not going to church. It's not doing things right. It, it, it's new birth that will make an eternal difference in our lives. And so the, the question of the morning, Francis Church, those of you out there in the Internet land, have you been born again? You know, we can come to church and not be born again. You know, you can pray prayers and not be born again. You know, you can get baptized. That's my story. My grandma wanted me to sing in her church, and it was a Baptist church. To sing in a Baptist church, you had to become a member of the church and be baptized. Jeff got baptized. I sang in a church, but Jeff was not a Christian. I had never even read my Bible. Shame on me. So the crucial question for all of us, that's the question we have to answer. Have you been born again? That's what Jesus asked Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He came to Jesus in the dead of night because he didn't want, he was a Pharisee. He didn't want anybody to catch him being slick, going to talk to Jesus. Pharisees didn't like Jesus. But Nicodemus was, he was gleaning what Jesus was says and was tickling his, his heart. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus and he asks him the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, I mean, chances are Nicodemus was a real cool guy, a real good guy. He had probably followed all the rules. He was probably really smart, astute. He probably knew the scriptures. He was probably a praying guy. He was probably abounding in all kind of good works. But Jesus sees through him, and as soon as Nicodemus asked the question of Jesus, Jesus basically uh, gave him the reply that Nicodemus wasn't ready for. And he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, there's one thing that you lack, brother. You need to be born again. You need to be born of spirit and of water, which is a, a lofty way of saying you need to have a change coming from the inside out. You need to be born from above. Something needs to happen to you that you can't contrive in your own strength. You need God to come in and renovate you, like from the inside out, changing who you are. you got to be born again. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Nicodemus, must become your God and Father in Jesus and that's the same thing for us. There's no hope for any of us apart from this new birth. So Transit Church, have you been born again? And so he goes on. There's two aspects to being born again that Peter alludes to. Verse 3, he says, it comes according to God's great mercy. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And of course, that means we can't become born again by any mechanism for which we can contrive and then apply to ourselves. There's, there's not a, a suit that we can put on, a starting line that we can start at, and a race that we can run and get to the finish line first and be born again in our own strength. We need God's help. Paul will use that same language in Ephesians 2. He says, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love of which he's loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's no wonder Peter breaks into a doxology and praise as he's thinking through all this stuff. 
because we can't give new birth to ourselves. None of us can like backtrack to pre-birth, pre-womb, pre-intimacy of our parents and say, you know what, I think I need somebody to will me into existence so I can be born, right? We don't do that. And you also can't do that in regards to new birth. And so Peter, acknowledging that, this is what he says, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of mercy. And according to that mercy, he gives us, he gives me new birth. And so that's the first aspect of, uh, of new life, of new birth. It's God's mercy. If you call yourself a Christian, guess what? You've been a recipient of God's great mercy. He's given you new birth. That's the second thing. The second aspect Peter mentions is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like Peter goes all the way back to Easter right here in verse three. Verse three, we were born again to live to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what Peter's saying. Because he lives, I also live. In my grandma's Baptist church, one of the favorite songs they used to sing. So this is a black Baptist church. So it's, you know. It, it's, I just miss it, just thinking about it. And so uh, there's, there's a tapestry of the generation of, of the saints there, and there's this favorite song they used to sing, they used to stomp on the wood floor, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, because he lives. Some of y'all know it. All fear is gone. <laughs> you sing it where? What? All right. Because I know he holds the future. My life is worth a living just because he lives. Peter, Peter's saying the same thing. All right. Black church, white church. Right, right. I bet y'all didn't stop on the wood floor. <laughs> because he lives, I live. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. Because Jesus lives. Every single one of God's people will live. White, black, red, brown, whatever, regardless of what kind of church or what kind of floor you got. And, and this is because of the resurrection of Jesus, right? Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross in our place for our sin. He goes into the grave. The Holy Spirit raises him up. He's alike. He's like, not a, he's a, not a dead man anymore. He's alive. And because Jesus is alive, it gives us hope. And it proves that death does not have the last word. Not over Jesus, and if not for Jesus, if I put my faith in him, not for me either. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope. Death can't hold Jesus, Acts 2.24 says, and it can't hold us if we're united to Jesus by faith, Paul argues in Romans 5 and 6. Here's what one theologian says, Edmund Clowning, in his commentary on 1 Peter. When Christ rose, he secured our salvation. He entered that new day of which the prophets spoke, and he brought us with him. Peter is saying what Paul also declared. When Christ rose, we rose. And giving life to Christ, God gave life to all those who are united to Christ. God's elect have a hope that is as sure as Christ's resurrection. Christ has not just made their salvation possible. He's made it sure. You have a sure foundation, a sure faith. Trinity Church, all because of God's mercy. I like the, the metaphor that Jesus uses in John 15, where he's talking about uh, him being the branch, us being divine, right? And so the metaphor is us being united to Jesus. And as the metaphor draws on, he says, we have been grafted into this vine. And here's what happens. We're grafted into it like we're like, like he sticks it. I don't know how horticulturalists do it, but they take a branch that's foreign to a plant. They somehow attach it so that the, the life of the vine, the sap flows from the vine into this 
foreign branch, and in so doing, it gives it life. And you know it's got life, how? Because it bears fruit. And Jesus says, if it doesn't bear fruit, there ain't no life. I'm going to cut it off. That's what he says about our lives. When, the, when the God the Father gives new birth, he's not doling out some abstraction. He's uniting you to Jesus, the living one, and he, his life flows into your life. Because he lives, you also live. His life, the resurrection life that Jesus has, is the guarantee of your life. And so here's what Peter's saying. In his great mercy, God gives us new birth. And then Peter mentions three things or three results of this new birth. Here's what he says. He says, God gives you a living hope, verse 3, an indestructible inheritance, verse 4, and a secure salvation, verse 5. And all of these three things follow from our new birth. The first thing, a, a living hope. All right, here's what happens when we hope. Our, 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 our hope really amounts to uh, wishful thinking and empty aspirations. We're like closing our eyes, clicking our heels like Dorothy, saying, like, I wish I was back in, you know, like, what did, I don't even remember what Dorothy said. What did Dorothy say? I wish I was home. All right. When we, when we think of hope, here's what we do. We say, you know, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or, or I hope I get that promotion that I've been trying to get. I hope tomorrow's going to be a better day than today. Kids in the room, uh, I hope I get that toy for Christmas or for my birthday that I've been asking and bugging my parents that I would get so that they'll get it for me. When we hope, we're usually talking about something uncertain, perhaps even unlikely, that we long for, but of which we have no assurance that it's actually going to come true. That's not biblical hope. It's not biblical hope. It's not closing our eyes and wishing like Dorothy. Christian hope is sure and it's certain because it depends not on us, it depends on God. It's a it's the hope of glory. It depends on Jesus. Let me give you a scenario. Say you got a check in the mail. So, so the Tumor family got a check in the mail last week. I wasn't expecting it. But when it came, I was like, praise the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right, right, right. Don't you do that when you get a check? Right. So I open a check. Uh, and then I, I almost, because, you know, I'm quick with mail. I'll look at it, and if it looks like junk mail, I'm going to tear it up and not even waste my time. And I almost did this. But something told me, all right, Jeff, do the, thing, do the right thing. Open it up. So I open it up. As soon as I pulled that joker out, USAA, USAA. You know, <laughs> my, my enthusiasm grew a little bit more because I really was not expecting a check. Uh, right? And then I pulled it out. Jeff and Larissa Tumor, that's my name. Like, issued by USAA. CFO signs it down and it's like, cha-ching, the tumor's got some more money, let's go out to eat. Right, right? Don't we do that? So when we, when we get a check, what's, what's happening? That check is a promise uh, of money owed to us. Now, when I have the check in my hand, does that mean I got money in my pocket? What do y'all think? It's kind of, sort of. If it's a legit check, absolutely. All I got to do is endorse that joke on the back. USAA, I'm going to take a picture of it. Beep, beep. And that's, that's going to go on my bank account, right? But in today's day, the, the check represents money that's not just owed to you, but if, after you do the, the correct transaction, it, it's going to be there, all right? It's, it's something that's promised to you that there's an indicator. It's, you possess it. You just got to go through some, some actions to do it. You know, the resurrection is kind of that same, same way. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, by the new life he's given you, God has signed his name on the promise of a check made out to you of the glory that's to come. 
God has signed his own name and a, on a promise, and that check, if it's sure, and it's, it's the certainty that you can rest because the living Lord has given you new life. You're a living hope, not a dead hope, not a forlorn hope, a living hope, Transit Church. The second thing he says, an indescribable inheritance. When we think about inheritance, we're thinking about money too, right? We think about someone gifting us property or land or some kind of wealth. An inheritance is a gift presented to you based upon a relationship. It's not something you have to work for. It's not something that you have to go to work and earn a wage or do some kind of performance. Here's what Peter says. He says, because of God's mercy and our new birth, verse 4, we receive an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Like what poetic language from a fisherman? Right. But but beyond the good sounding nature of these words, here's what this means. It means this inheritance is a gift that rests on God, the father's grace and his covenant covenant. Old Testament word carried through in the New, New, New Testament. That, that means that God doesn't treat me as I deserve. In fact, God's actions toward me are based upon his steadfast faithfulness and his grace toward me, not my fickle nature of, of how I respond to him. And so God's steadfast grace and his covenant. And because God keeps us safe, our inheritance is safe. Said differently, nothing can spoil your inheritance. One commentator says, it's untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. And if you didn't get that, here's another way to say it. Nothing can keep this inheritance from us, and nothing can keep us from it. Here's how Peter says it. He says, it's kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's where the secure salvation comes in. This is like the president of the United States that goes everywhere and nowhere without his secret service, right? If the, if the TV series, old TV series West Wing, of which I am still watching, I'm in season four, because I didn't watch it when it came on. It was of no interest to me. Now I, I, I can't get away from politics because the world won't let me. Um, and so if West Wing is correct, the Secret Service are at, at, at arm's length of the president, like in the, in the residence, in the Oval Office, out and about, around the world. The Secret Service are always around him, right? And so like Secret Service guarding the president, it's as if God is on guard duty. For those of you that are military in the room, you know what it's like when we're on guard duty, right? Like, I've fallen asleep on guard duty before. Show enough. Perhaps you have too. God ain't going to fall asleep on guard duty, right? So two things. God keeps the inheritance for us, and he keeps us for the inheritance. But he also keeps treasure for us and guards us so that we will properly enjoy it. So good. And so, of course, another question for us is, what, what actually is our inheritance? We think naturally, we think of someone bequeathing us some property or some land or some wealth that at some point I can exchange for monetary value. The Bible doesn't speak of inheritance in terms of uh, uh, those kinds of wealth, although the Israelites would have thought of inheritance in terms of land, the promised land, a land filled with milk and honey. But here's what the Bible says. If you buy into the, the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, uh, reconciliation, consummation, there is coming a consummation where Jesus makes right 
all the wrong things about our world. And he says he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth where he reigns over his people in his place. Jesus says in the, in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth, which corroborates that, that same thought of the new heavens and the new earth in the consummation. But I think it's even more than that. Here's what, like, I'm, I'm loving this verse from Lamentations. I quoted it in my opening prayer. Here's what Lamentations 3.24 says. This is Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I think he's in trying to encourage himself. And the verse that I want to highlight is verse 24 for you, but I'm going to back up two verses because these are just so good. He says, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Stop right there. I think the prophet is, he's having, he's uh, reflecting on uh, the sin of Israel. And he's probably lamenting what's happening or what's going to happen to them in regards to going into exile. And, and then he reminds himself of the steadfast love of the Lord, and he's singing this over himself and over his people. Then he comes to verse 24. He encourages himself with these words like that. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And here's what Jeremiah is saying, at least I think. I think he's saying, here's, here's the very core of, of what our inheritance is. It's God himself. God is my portion. We, we give God, God, we get to see God. We get to be with God. He will be our great delight and our joy forever. God gives himself, of course, to us in the person of Jesus. In the New Testament, as Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he, he gives us all these, these wonderful pictures that, that he himself is the pearl of great price, that Jesus himself is the, is the treasure buried in a field for, for joy over which we gladly give up all of our other riches. That we let all of our assets go, including this mortal life, that we may have him. He is our inheritance. And so Peter wants us to think about these privileges, these gospel privileges. God, he says, is the guarantor of our hope. He's the, the substance of our inheritance. And he himself is the one that protects and guards and keeps us. He preserves us until the full reality of that inheritance is yours. Not only in the promise, but in the, in, in the possession of it as well. And so no wonder Peter starts off with a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So those are our gospel privileges. And now in these last few verses, here's what Peter does. He shows us how to make use of them. And the first way that he shows us how to make use of them is he talks about joy and suffering. And this idea of, of suffering and the joy that can accompany it will be what Peter will, will land on pretty much in every chapter of of this book that he writes. Joy and suffering. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. At first glance, verse 6 uh, in particular seems kind of confusing. Peter is presenting to us a paradox. Uh, these dispersed Christians are rejoicing in, the, in, the, in response to the amazing gospel privileges that God has lavished upon them. But Peter also says that they seem to be grieved by various trials. And this makes me want to ask, all right, Peter, well, which one is it? Are they happy or sad? 
are, are, they, are they rejoicing or are they grieving? And of course, as we read on, the, the truth of the matter is, it's both. Both are going on at the same time. Perhaps you have experienced that before as well. Peter is saying two things at the same time. He's saying because of the gospel, we have this great joy. In fact, we're some of the most happy, the, the, the happiest, most content people on the planet. But, but that joy comes amidst all kinds of sorrow, right? Those two things are going on at the same time. My eyes are trained on uh, the word rejoice in verse 6. In this you rejoice, he says. This is the same Greek word that we'll be introduced to in verse 8. It literally means great joy or much leaping. In the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are going to the temple to pray. And as they enter the temple, on the steps is a lame man. This lame man is, of course, reaching out, crying out, hoping for them to give, give them something, a coin, a little help, maybe even offer a prayer. And, and Peter says these famous words. He said, he said like, I, I don't have any silver or gold, but, but as such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so Peter lends the man a hand, probably helps, like nudges him up a little bit. The man's ankles, um, uh, I guess they stand up, you know, he stands up, the, the ankles become strong. And then, of course, if, if, I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. But I like what the Bible says that happens after that. Not only did the man stand up, but it says he began leaping. He, came, he began leaping for joy. Why is he leaping? Because he's just been healed. He got what he did not expect to get. He actually got what he didn't even, didn't even ask for. There's another place where we see this idea of great joy and much leaping. It's Acts chapter 16. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of the, uh, the Philippian jailer. He had... Um, he had been the jailer for, for Paul. Um, the angel releases the prison. Uh, the, the jailer's about to kill himself. Uh, Peter tells him, don't do that. All right, they end up going to his house. He gets saved. The family gets baptized. And then we read in the, in the last words of this chapter, and he rejoiced the jailer along with his household, his entire household, that had believed in God. I think Peter has in mind these two instances of people receiving God's great mercy and then responding in, in, in great joy, experiencing some kind of suffering, but yet joy being the, the emotion that comes out on top of that. And of course, the basis for rejoicing in, in the midst of suffering, Peter is looking again back to God's mercy. And so here's what's true about you and me, and you know this to be true, right? Like, like every one of us in this room, uh, we may on the outside look as if things are all right, as if we're content, satisfied, like, I got all my needs met. I'm as happy as I can be. But the, but the reality is, alongside us, tangential to us, maybe involving us, like, personally, there's challenges, right? P personal challenges. There's relational challenges. There's financial challenges. There's marriage challenges. There's friendship challenges and transitions that we're going through. Actually, people are getting ready to PCS from our church even now. Some of us have major health issues, and if not us, the people that are close to us. And I haven't even mentioned the coronavirus or the racial tensions going on in our country, right? And so when you put all those things together, this stuff can be crushing and cause us a lot of sadness. And so here's what Peter is trying to get us to, 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 to receive, to believe, to hold on to. The gospel provides us this unending source of good news, a constant source of joy, no matter what my particular circumstance might be. Like, my, my life could be 
crushing me. But there, uh, there's on the inside a joy because of God's great mercy and what he's called me to and what he's done for me that overrides all that. It doesn't take the stuff away, but it makes it endurable, right? That's what he's trying to get us to. And, and here's what I learned about my life. You know, oftentimes we fall into the trap, the, the hole, the lie of believing that our joy is dependent on our circumstance. If I'm happy, if my circumstance is good, I'll have some joy. And if not, I ain't going to have no joy. If I just had a little more time on my hands, it would increase my joy. If I had some more money, I'd definitely have a little bit more joy, right? If, if, if I had healthy relationships or happy kids, it would increase my joy. If I could just get one or two professional sports to come on TV, on ESPN, CBS, ABC, anything, I, I'd have more joy. If I could get my president to stop tweeting just for one day, I had to put that one in there. I'd have a little bit of joy. I think Peter's trying to show us, the, I just encourage myself right there. I think Peter's trying to show us the wonder of the new birth. Again, this is all tied to the new birth, folks. God creates within us this new disposition to both rejoice, but also to grieve at the same time. You ever been watching a movie, and the movie is not necessarily a comedy, but it has comical elements into it, and you might be laughing, or you might be, uh, there's drama, and there's emotion that you're feeling, identifying with, and at the same time, you're laughing. It's like joy, sorrow, grief, crying all at the same time. All right, the, the metaphor breaks down in terms of what Peter's trying to convey to us, but it's kind of sort of like the same thing. Because we've been grafted into this family of God, and we've come to partake of, of the life that Jesus gives us, the resurrection life. We have more cause again for joy than any other human being on the planet. But at the same time, the Spirit of God in us, and our own personal pain, and the fact that we live today in this land full of, of sin and misery that seems to be getting worse every day, all this stuff mixed together leads us to grief. I'm joyous in what God has done for me, right? But I look at the world I'm in, it's like, oh, Lord, take me home. This is messed up. And so for these Christians and for us, they were being persecuted, hated, reviled, excluded, killed for their faith in Jesus. So there's this strange paradox at play. There's rejoicing, but there's also grieving. You know, the, the only way that this, this idea of joy in the midst of grief makes sense is when we look at it through the lens of, of, of gospel privilege. When you look at your life through the lens of, of God's story, his story is the only story that makes sense in, in, in both the sense of grieving and joy and encouraging us to engage in both of those at the same time. In God's story, there's this great brokenness in the world, but there's a, there's a good, caring God who's in control and over all the pain. And more than that, God enters our pain through Jesus, right? Jesus comes, he incarnates as a baby, he grows up, he wears our clothes, walks our streets, eats our food, he becomes one of us. Jesus becomes flesh. He takes on the form of a bondservant and he suffers. And it's right to know because the Bible proves this, that Jesus suffered more than any human being on the planet has ever suffered. And so God, just is, God isn't just over our suffering, he's in our suffering. And someday the Bible tells us he's going to wipe away every tear and every bit of sorrow and every bit of grief from the world that we know, because God makes all things new. And so we get to rejoice, but we also get to grieve at the same time. Verse 7 
I know we got to speed up. So that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says there's three results of suffering. The picture he gives us is, is gold being purified, gold being put in a crucible, that crucible being put in the fire, heated to 2,000 degrees so that the gold melts down to its pure form and the impurities float to the top. All right, so the impurities float to the top. You can just uh, scrape that stuff off and then you've got some beautiful looking gold. And so here's what Peter is conveying to us. Gold is valuable, but it's perishable. It won't last forever. And so from this analogy, he's giving us two similarities and, and one difference. And the, and, the, and the one difference is, is, of course, that our faith is not going to perish. It will last forever. Gold doesn't last forever, even though it's, it's, it's one of the most sought after and, and purest. Um, what is gold? Give it to me. Precious metal. Thank you. All right. It's one of the most precious that we got, right? Yeah, that won't last forever, but our genuine faith will. Here are the two similarities. The first, through suffering, our faith is proven genuine. Through your suffering, your faith is proven genuine. It's proven to be the real deal. But of course, the problem is none of us like suffering. Like when, when, when we encounter a little bit of suffering, what do we do? Well, we, we try and hide from it. We try and push it off as, 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 as far as we can. We're tempted, when life heats up, we're tempted to throw in a towel, self-medicate with food, drugs, and Netflix. Or, or we believe that God is not there, that God is not good, or that God does not care. And so the Holy Spirit has to produce in us faith, faith in the midst of a trial. And when he does that, even when you're being barraged by temptation, Jesus meets us in a powerful way. And in fact, if you're like me, and I think this is the way it works more often than not, we experience some kind of suffering, and through that suffering, um, Jesus not only meets us, he, he, he helps us through it, and he empowers us to endure. Our faith proves to be real. Here's the second thing. Through suffering, our faith is proved to be purified. James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so when our faith is put into the crucible and the fiery furnace of trial, it's proven to be genuine. But secondly, here's what Peter is suggesting with the help of James. that The impurities rise to the top, and of course the impurities are those things that are marks in your character, things that God would not have you, have you to have. And so he removes those so that there's a purity that's left. And what do we got left? We, 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 get, to, we get to grow in steadfastness. We get to grow in maturity. And, of course, that's a result of suffering. In fact, sometimes those things can't happen unless we suffer, unless we go through a trial, unless we go through something that's difficult, that's hard. The real us doesn't come to the surface. All right? Without pressure, everything resorts to form. But when we add pressure, the, like the, the bad stuff, it comes to the top. Right. You make notice of it. It's an opportunity for us to confess our sin, to repent, ask God to remove those things from us. Right. And then add to us the fruit of the spirit to include steadfastness and to grow us into maturity. There's one more thing that, that, that Paul adds. He says this is the third result of uh, of of suffering. And it's praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Revelation means to to uncover 
to bring to the surface something that was previously hidden. So someday Jesus will be seen even if we don't see him now. That's what he's saying to these people. Someday you will actually see Jesus. And when Jesus is seen, seen by who? By those around us. When your neighbor actually knows that you're going through something difficult, but you still have the persona of of not necessarily having your act together, but of being encouraged in the Lord, not in your own strength. What will it do? It'll it'll bring praise and honor and, and glory to Jesus when you've endured, when you've endured through suffering. All right, so... Uh, here's the last point, and then we'll be done. Evidences of genuine faith. And so Peter has shown us some, the, the gospel privileges that we've had, and then he's showing us how, to, how, how those manifest in our life. The first is through joy and suffering, and then, of course, lastly, he shows us uh, what the evidences of genuine faith look like. Verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that, that's inexpressible, and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so Peter wants to encourage his listeners by saying, hey, I see some things in you that prove your faith. In fact, I see that your faith is real and it's genuine. How do I know that? Because you've been enduring through some really tough trials. I can't help but think about Peter's encounter with Thomas. Thomas, one of the original disciples, Thomas that became an apostle and went and evangelized all of India, right? After the resurrection, some of Jesus' followers uh, get, to, get to see him alive. They're excited, and Thomas, of course, doesn't happen to be there. And so they tell Thomas, and Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe Jesus resurrected from the dead. I won't believe it unless I see him. You show me Jesus. In fact, more than that, you show me Jesus. You show me the male marks in his hand. You show me in his size where he was pierced by a spear, and then I'll believe you. Maybe, right? And so Jesus is gracious and kind to Thomas. Later on, he shows up, and uh, this is what Jesus does in his graciousness. He allows Thomas to touch him. He allows Thomas to feel him. Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, don't, don't be unbelieving. Believe. And then we read in John 20, verse 29. Have you believed, Jesus says, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is, this is, where, Peter, this is where Jesus wants us to get to. In fact, Peter is writing, reflecting back on Jesus' words to to Thomas in this instant where he did not have belief because he could not see. And then Peter is uh, encouraging, accolading these disciples who are dispersed because of persecution. He's saying, here is the, the mark of genuine faith. You've never seen Jesus. Never. But you believe in him. 2,000 years have passed. And, and, and the word of God is saying to us, guess what? You people in the 21st century... You've never seen Jesus, but you believe in him. How do I know that you believe in him? Because you're enduring. Like, your life sucks, right? Maybe it doesn't suck. It's hard, right? There are things in our lives that are hard, and yet you're enduring. Peter's writing to this group of people who who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They're suffering because of the name of Jesus. They bear his name, being called Christians, and yet they love him. And that was a sign that they were enduring. And I got to I mean, that doesn't make sense, does it? They're being crushed for identifying with Jesus. And yet Peter's saying, you love him. You're still following him. That, that kind of, that's the paradox, right? 
a lot of times, if life is crushing us, we're going to back up. I'm not going to keep doing the thing that I was doing. I'm going to back up so that my life becomes easy. And these people weren't doing that. They should be reviled. They should not want to be associated with Jesus because of being associated with his name is bringing persecution onto them. But what did they do? They loved him. They believed in Jesus. And of course, they have joy. How do we explain that? How do we explain all those people through the annals of history that, uh, that despite suffering in their life, the thing that we think about them when we think about them is the joy that we know that came from their lives. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II or Corey Ten Boone or Mother Teresa. And of course, during the, the civil rights movement, a name that we're mentioning a lot now in the racial tensions of our country, Martin Luther King Jr. These people are known both for suffering, but more so for joy. And of course, there's a mystery to this. How do you express joy in the midst of suffering? It's a mystery. It's not something that we can contrive in our own. We can't like get on a rat race wheel and, and, and spin up joy in our lives. That's not how it works. God has to infuse it in us, and he does that by the Spirit. He does it by suffering. I think he does it by giving us the fruit of the Spirit, causing those fruits to, to grow in us. The Holy Spirit is alive in you, and he's at work. And, of course, that's how we know that our faith is real, which means the gospel doesn't just offer us a blessing that we get to, be, uh, to confess our sins, and those sins are forgiven. The gospel is God giving himself to us. God gives us himself through Jesus, but also through the person of the Holy Spirit, so that such that he lives in us. And according to verse 8, this produces, like the, like the name, lame man in Acts 3, much leaping, joy inexpressible, and filled with glory. Here, let me finish with this. You know, there's, there's some here who probably can't comprehend why we would feel this way about Jesus, especially if your life is hard, if you're going through uh, just a difficult way right now, if you're being oppressed in any way, going through any kind of a trial, particularly like these people here, like, like these first century Christians, uh, for identifying as a Christian, for identifying your name with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But here's how we can comprehend that. It's because the God we serve, Jesus suffered more than anyone who's ever lived. And he experiences this on the cross. And, and, and the Bible gives us a reason for Jesus' joy. Here's what Hebrews 12 says. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despises its shame. Jesus went to the cross for the joy that awaited him, the, the, the joy that he would have. He, he saw into the future to the point where God the Father would be pleased with his sacrifice and he would inherit the people that God gave him. And he'd enjoy them. And we would enjoy him forever so that you and I would have joy in the midst of our own suffering. Faith in the good news is only, it's the only thing that's going to provide this kind of joy for me and you. A transcendent, deep joy. Today, Jesus offers this joy to you. Whether you're experiencing Jesus for the first time or perhaps the 5,000th time, Jesus offers you joy. Here's the question. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, we are indeed recipients of not just joy, but of mercy, of great grace. We have these beautiful words in this text that Peter uses to, to remind us of who we are. We're chosen 
God has called us to himself. And though we're scattered, even today we're scattered. Right now, some are here, some are you know, around the DMV and even around the country peering in. And though we might not suffer the way the early church was suffering, Lord God, there's still difficulties in our life. Difficulties for acknowledging Jesus. And for that, Lord God, we know we need your help. In this text today, God, we're reminded uh, of the good God that we serve and the gospel privileges that he affords us when we put our faith in him. Principle of those is this idea of new birth. So I, I speak by the Holy Spirit to those who have yet to profess the name of Jesus, to confess their sins and uh, see their need for a Savior. God, would you, by your Spirit, like pierce through the, the, the Teflon of our lives and of our hearts, and would you awaken souls to, to how good and caring you are, that you're a God that's full of steadfast love and mercy. It's new every morning, and you want to bestow on those who have yet to experience your great grace, the new birth, that you cause their spirits to come alive. Would you do that today for those who are listening, for those who are here? Would you bring new life, new creatures in Christ? I pray for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a while, God, that you would renew our faith, that you would cause us to trust that you do have a living hope for us, this great inheritance, and that God, you secured our salvation, and you do that both for the life that we'll live here through the troubles and all, but also for the life to come. And God, give us hope that that'll be a life that, that, that we can wait for. Help us to endure, we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.